Well, we are continuing in Jeremiah. We've got just a couple weeks left here. And we are at the point in this book where things have changed. So we're no longer reading a book that is about the warnings of things that are going to happen to the nation of Judah if they don't repent. We're at this place where the punishment has already come. The people of Judah have been taken far away, placed 500 miles away in this enemy nation of Babylon. And now we are reading some of God's words to these exiles. I understand as we listened to this passage, uh, you might be able to get maybe the gist of what's happening, but it can seem a little hazy reading some of this Old Testament Hebrew poetry. Um, It it may not, upon the first read, uh, strike us as how this is applicable to us, but as I've looked at Jeremiah 31 this week, I've come to realize that this particular chapter in the book is probably one of the most applicable chapters for us. It's one of the chapters that's most easy for us to relate to um, because in this chapter, God is speaking directly into an experience that we all have. He's speaking directly into something that we all feel. This week, one of my Facebook friends Uh, It was her birthday, and she posted this very long, reflective uh, Facebook post. And in it she said, uh, On my 38th anniversary of my birth, I've been thinking, what is 38? What has my life been? Where is it going? And what am I grateful for? And then she goes on to say, I think my mind has this idea of what a 38-year-old is. But I don't feel that's what I am. In my heart, I feel ageless. Can anybody relate to that? This idea that we don't don't quite feel like we think we're supposed to? That there is this dissonance in our existence? There is a difference between how we expect things were going to be, how we hope things were going to be, how we think things should be. And then how things actually are. Like the Israelites who are living in Babylon, these people who have been taken far away, we live in a tension. We live in a tension between this life that we dream about, this life that we long for, and then the life we actually have. In this passage, I hope what we're going to see this morning is that we are all exiles. And only when we start to understand here today that we're all Exiles, are we going to be able to understand that dissonance in our lives? That's the only thing that makes that, uh, that feeling make sense to us. And so as we look at this today, that's what I want us to see. I want us to first talk about that idea. I want us to see the proof in this passage that we are all exiles. And then I want us to talk about what is the home that we're made for? What's the home that we're longing for? And then finally, how do we get there? So I want us to see the proof They were exiles, the home that we were made for, and then the way back to that home. So you'll open up your Bibles with me. Um, If you don't have one, we've got paper Bibles in the seats, and you are certainly welcome to take one of those home with you if you don't have a copy. We believe the Bible is God's Word, and we want everybody to have have a copy of it. So here we go. Verse 15 of Jeremiah 31, right in the middle of our passage, it says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel 
is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That verse is a poetic description of the pain these people, these exiles, are feeling in Babylon. It talked about Rama, this place. That is the name of a town that was about five miles north of Bethlehem. So that was the place where they took all the people who were about to be exiled and gathered them up before they went through the long march to Babylon. It was a place of, of tremendous pain and grief. And then it says, it references Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel is an Old Testament figure. It's, it's referring to the book of Genesis. Rachel was, was Jacob's wife, the mother of Joseph, who was, that means she was kind of the matriarch of Israel. She is this descendant of the people of Israel. And her tears are a metaphor. It's, it's saying that this is a sorrow. This is the sorrow that Israel feels for the loss. This is a painful time where all their people have been taken away. And it's, it's, it's a horrendous way to go through life. But then the rest of the passage, almost every other verse that we read, is a joyful description. It has this beautiful language of restoration, and it's a kind of restoration that is a lot more than just coming back to Jerusalem. This is a bigger restoration that Jeremiah is talking about. It, it talks about singing and dancing and joy and comfort. It talks about abundance. What this passage is really speaking to is our longing to be restored. It's, it's not just a picture for these people back then, but this is a picture of all of human life, that there is a discrepancy between our current experience, between the current pain of our everyday life, and what we are all yearning for. This type of fulfillment and comfort that we all sense we need and, and we're always seeking after. C.S. Lewis, he talks about this idea a lot in one of his really famous essays, uh, The Weight of Glory. I'm not sure if you've ever read it before. But in that essay, he says that everyone, all people are always chasing after this common experience, this sense of joy. Maybe you might think of it as wholeness or, or happiness. But we're always chasing after this thing that we can never quite find. And one of the most common places we experience this is in nostalgia. Um, you know, we're headed into the holidays pretty soon. It's hard to believe, but we're just a couple of weeks away um, from, from Thanksgiving. And I, I'm a, I love the holidays. When I was a kid, I used to especially love Christmas, maybe like a lot of us. Christmas was a, a, a huge deal. And my memory of Christmas as a child was a memory that, that it was almost magical. And if you share that feeling, I don't know if you do, but as an adult, I, I always am chasing after that experience. I always want to recreate that feeling. And so I try to, I get excited about Christmas. I play the same songs I used to listen to when I was a kid. We decorate, we, we go drive around and try to find big mansions with tons of Christmas lights on them. But as much as I chase after, as, as much as I try to build up to this feeling of Christmas, I never really get there. It's always something that, that lives back in the past. And even if there's like a moment where I feel that way for just a second, that's all it is. And it's gone. Have you ever felt that before? Maybe you feel that way about music or a, a piece of art. 
Sometimes you hear, find one of those songs, and it just speaks to you. And you, you get yourself lost in the music, and it's like playing into your soul. And so then we, we get that track or, or, or symphony, and we, we play it over and over and over again. And what happens? Do we keep feeling that every single time? No, it kind of starts to lose its power, right? We go visit that piece of art, and eventually we just remember what we felt that one time. We find ourselves seeking after this feeling that we can't really explain. We can't even totally give it a name. But we're all chasing it. Well, C.S. Lewis, he says, the reason we all do that is because that feeling is trying to tell us something. That experience is trying to, to point us somewhere. Here's what he says. He says, the books or the music where we thought the beauty was located will always betray us because it was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through those things was longing. These things, the beauty, the memories of our past, they're all good images that we desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they just become dumb idols that crush the hearts of worshipers. And here's the quote I love. He says, they're not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we haven't found, the echo of a tune we haven't heard, and news from a country that we have never yet visited. Why do we feel that way? Why do we feel this experience that C.S. Lewis calls this longing for a far-off country? Well, the Bible answers that question. The story of Scripture that we, we find unfolding throughout the Bible is a story that tells us we are all, every single one of us, we're exiles. That the story of creation was that God created the world to be a perfect place with men and women reflecting his glory and expanding it across, across the world. You remember Genesis chapter 1, he says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and he said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. There was this plan that the people would be in relationship with God, building this culture, cultivating this culture for his glory. But if you know the story, it doesn't last very long. Pretty soon, people start rejecting God. They start going their own ways. And this plan for creation is ruined by the sin of the world. And just a couple pages later, Genesis chapter 3, here's what we see. Therefore the Lord sent them out of the garden of Eden to work the ground which he was taken. He drove them out. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword, and he turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's a story of exile. The people were kicked out <laughs> and barred from re-entering. And so now that's our story. Every human being enters into this world in a state of exile. We were made for relationship with God. We were made to glorify God and enjoy His presence forever. 
But now our sin has, has blinded us to that. Now our sin sends us seeking after that fulfillment, seeking after that glory in anything, in everything that gives us even just the faintest glimmer or hope for happiness. Whatever gives us a little bit of adrenaline. Whatever is, makes us think, maybe this will give me some meaning in my life. In other words, all of this stuff, this sense of yearning for more, the fact that no vacation ever lives up to our expectations, that no amount of success ever makes us feel successful, that no degree ever makes us feel like we're smart, that no amount of money is ever enough money. All of this stuff is proof. All of it is proof that we're yearning for something bigger. That we are yearning for, for paradise. It's proof that we're all exiles. Lewis goes on, he says, A man's physical hunger doesn't prove that a man will get any bread. He might die of starvation on a raft in the, raft in the Atlantic. But surely, a man's hunger does prove that he comes from a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable substances exist. And he goes on to say, in that same way, though I do not believe my desire for paradise proves that I will enjoy it, I think it's a pretty good indication that such a thing exists and that some people will. Our hearts are longing for something more. This promise of restoration that we find in Jeremiah, it shows us that those desires exist because the place exists. The desire is there because we are all exiles and we were made for a better country. That's the proof that we're exiles. But what is it? Where's the place that we're longing for? What kind of home is behind all of these desires? Where are all of the signposts pointing? So my friend's Facebook post, it was a pretty long post. It went on. She expressed some of the things that she had been thankful for in the past year and in that moment in her life. But then it closed with what I would consider a resolution for the year to come. And she says, so in my 38th year, I am going to practice this. I'm practicing single tasking and delving even more deeply into the vast array of human connective possibilities. I want to connect it all. I'm taking this bright light of mine and shining it on everyone I pass. She says, I am approaching, I am approaching life from a place of abundance knowing that all that I have is enough. And she ends by saying, yes, yes, abundance. You know, it's a beautiful sentiment, honestly, what she's expressing. She wants to connect with other people in her life more deeply. She wants to invest in the relationships that she has. And she wants to start every day from the presupposition that what she has right now is enough. In fact, she wants to start 
from the idea that what she has right now is more than enough, that it's abundant. But I'm really interested to follow what happens with her this year. And, and I'm even more interested to see what comes up next year on, on the 39th birthday. Because I think this is something we all do. This is a strategy that we all take from time to time. We have a desire for abundance. And we try to convince ourselves that we can find it. We have this desire and we try to convince ourselves that we're going to be able to find that here on earth. That maybe our relationships with others will fulfill us. Or that our job is finally going to become fulfilling. Or that the next episode of our favorite TV show. Or maybe finally this next Star Wars movie will be good, right? We try to convince us that, that we try to convince ourselves that something is going to live up to our expectations. We look to the world to give it to us, but it never does. Because the truth is, the world's best is still far less than we need. The world's best is still far less than what we actually need. And that's why when Christ comes, one of the, one of the things Christ said that strikes a chord with everyone I, I know who reads this, this line, whether they, they are the most, the most hardened heart or the most devout believer, when Jesus says in John chapter 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That strikes a chord in us. Abundant life. That's what we want. We want abundance so badly. But what is it? <laughs> what is it really? What does an abundant life look like? Well, that's what I think our Jeremiah passage really helps us with. Because we have a, a beautiful picture of an abundant life in these verses. There's three things that we see very clearly. First, in this passage, is a picture of reunion with God. That the first essence, the first element of an abundant life is a life that is reunited with God. Look at verse 8. Behold, and look at all these words that are like bring and return. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind, the lame, the pregnant woman, and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the words of the Lord, O nation, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who has scattered Israel will gather them. There's all this language about gathering, returning, bringing back. And that's the first thing. The first part of an abundant life has to be a life that is returned. A life that is brought back. A life that is reunited to God in the same way that we've been barred from Him in the, in the beginning of, of Scripture. But it's not just that we come back into His presence. The other theme that plays so strongly in this passage is there is a restoration here. A restoration of that broken relationship that dates all the way back to Genesis. Verse 9, he says that Ephraim is my firstborn and I am a father to Israel. 
It's echoed again at the very end of the passage where he says, Ephraim, is Ephraim my dear child? Is he my darling child? I will surely have mercy on him. That promise of abundance is a, is a promise about homecoming. It's the promise of the prodigal son. We talked about that story not too long ago, just a few weeks ago. But if you remember the story, it's uh, the story of, of a son who demands his inheritance from his father and takes all of his inheritance and goes off to a far country and squanders his wealth. He spends it and ends up waking up in a, in a pit, uh, longing to be fed with the same slop that the cows were eating or that the pigs were eating next to him. And, and he, at that moment, he, he comes to his senses and he says, I'm going to return home. I need to go and restore my relationship with my father. And so we read in Luke chapter 15 how that account goes. Verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The idea of abundance is this. It's the ability to know that before God, you are welcomed. Before God, you are loved and embraced. That God delights in you. It's the assurance that, that you belong to him and that he belongs to you. That's what abundance is. And then thirdly, what we see here, it's not just reunion, it's not just restoration, but what follows from all of this is a description of actual joy. A real experience of joy. Look again at the passage, verse 12. It says, They shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain and the wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the souls of the priests with abundance, and my people will be satisfied with my goodness. Singing, dancing, delighting, eating good food, fellowshipping with people. This is the promise of the Christian life. This is the abundance that Jesus is talking about. This is a description of real joy. There is actual joy here. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's no Christian on earth who's going to tell you that, that if you follow Jesus, you're promised to be happy all the time. That's certainly not the case. Suffering and hardship is always going to be a part of, a reality, of our reality living in a fallen world, living in a world that's defined by sin. But even in the midst of hardship, one of the great benefits 
of knowing that you have been welcomed by God and that God welcomes you is that even in the most difficult things, even through the, the, the toughest parts of reality, you can be certain that God's not out to get you. But the presence of suffering in our world, it doesn't negate this promise. It doesn't negate that knowing Christ is satisfying. That there is a real experience of joy in knowing God. That it is, that a relationship with God is the real joy behind all of these shadows that we pursue. Behind all these false things that we run after. As John Piper, that famous pastor from Minnesota, always talks about, there is a thing called Christian hedonism. There is this idea that God's plan for us is a plan for our pleasure and delight. God desires our joy and satisfaction. God is, what he always says, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And that's what Jesus promises when he offers us abundance. That is the home we were made for. Abundance. Yes, yes, abundance. That is abundance. He is the only one who can deliver so then how do we get there? If that's the home we were made for, if that's the description that we see, how do we end up in this place of abundance? Lewis, in that essay, he says, if all this stuff is true, if we really are made for this kind of abundance, then we'll know it because the desire will already be in us. We will already want this instinctually. But we'll end up attaching that desire to the wrong things. And it may even seem that the call to Christ's abundance would be uh, antagonistic. It might be the opposite of the way you've been pursuing it up until now. He's saying that we desire abundance, but we don't know how to get there. We're longing for this restored wholeness in our life. But we've attached the desires to the wrong objects. Like I mentioned before, we, we think we're going to get it from our occupation. And so we focus on that. Or, or we focus on our reputation in the community and what other people think about us. That's where we look uh, to be made whole. We spend our lives pursuing getting raises or promotions, or sexual conquests, all in the hopes that these things will lead us home. All in the hopes that those things will give us that sense of being home. That's, that's who we are. That's, that's our reality. And Jesus saw that. When Jesus comes, we see it in Mark, there's this line where Jesus looks out and he sees the crowd. And it says... When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's what sin does to us. Our sin makes us hopelessly lost, going from one thing to the next thing, looking for wholeness, looking for satisfaction. And we end up being like sheep caught in a storm, desperately trying to find shelter and not knowing how to find it. We're harassed and we're helpless. 
We need someone to guide us. And so we get to verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. He who has scattered Israel will gather them and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. Those verses have a bunch of images crammed all together. It's a mixture of several different illustrations. But could you pick out first, God says that he's going to gather the exiles together like a shepherd. He says he's going to bring the sheep of the flock back. And then he flips to this strange language. He says he has ransomed the people and redeemed the people. Why is, why is, what is that all about? Why would the shepherd need to ransom and redeem sheep? That kind of goes beyond this you know, language of the pasture. But I think maybe you, you know what this is all about. The message of the gospel is that it's not good enough for God just to bring us all back. Because sin isn't simply a mistake we've made. But our sin, just like the sin of, of Adam in the garden, is a rebellion against God. It's a conscious decision to live lives for ourselves instead of for him. It is a crime against the king of the universe. It is a break in the way this world is supposed to be. We live our lives feeling this, this disconnect. We live our lives feeling this dissonance. We feel the problem. We feel the pain of the world. But the truth is, we are the problem. And we have created this pain. And that means there has to be justice. That means there is a penalty owed. There is a payment that's owed to God. Now, I mentioned that passage in John where Jesus says, I came that they would have life and have it abundantly. Some of us, maybe we've memorized that passage before. Do you remember what follows it? Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. You see the connection there? You see the miracle of the gospel at work in this passage? That Jesus came to be that good shepherd that's promised in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jesus came not only to, to gather the people in, but to show us the way home. <laughs> okay, well, where was I? <laughs> Jesus came to show us the way home. And he did that by living a life in obedience to God. He did that by living the life that we were supposed to live. And he did it not just by that, but by dying the death we were supposed to die on the cross. He didn't live a life where he was falling in love and pursuing these false images of happiness. He didn't live a life falling in love with these vain idols. But he did all the things that we were supposed to do. And he faced on the cross the death that we were owed. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. 
That was the ransom price. The ransom that was owed, the penalty that, that needed to be paid was death, and Christ paid it. He gave his life and he redeemed our life. You see how all those things go together? The shepherd who ransoms and redeems. And so now, on this side of the cross, he calls out to all of us, all of us exiles living right here. And here's what he says. Verse 16. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. Jesus is calling his exiles home. That's what he came to do. He came to call the exiles back in. And if you are here this morning and you're hearing that call, there's only one way to respond. We see in our our passage that finally this gets through to the people of Judah. They say, you have disciplined me and I was disciplined. I was like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored. For you are the Lord, my God. They hear God's call and they say, I've been a fool. I've been like a dumb animal. I've resisted you and I've hurt myself. Please bring me back. It's the same thing as the cry of the prodigal son. Take me back, Father. I don't care. Just even if you have to make me a slave, please take me back. It's the sinner's prayer. It's the cry of of, of the prodigal. And here's how God responds. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. And my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. He says, you're my child. He responds to that cry and he says, you are my child. I long to have mercy on you. John picks up on this thread. He says, beloved, in Christ we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We're still longing. We're still looking. That thing far off we still want but we know that we, when he appears, we will be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. That's the message of this passage. We are poor, hopeless exiles. We were made for abundance. We were made for that far-off country, and we all know it. And the good shepherd has come. He's come to lead us home, and he's given his life to ransom you to redeem you, and to ensure that one day you will be there with him. Let's pray. Father, I'm, uh, I'm so grateful for all these signs that you give us in our everyday life, that there's something more to life than this. I thank you that even our sense of, of lacking reminds us that there must be more. But Lord, I know so often we have we've felt those feelings of emptiness, that desire for home. And it's, chase, it's sent us chasing after all sorts of, of false uh, hopes and dreams that they don't fulfill us, but only end up hurting us more. 
Lord, I thank you this morning that we have the invitation to return. I thank you this morning that because of Christ, you have shown us the way. And Lord, I thank you that through his resurrection, all who trust in him, all who repent and believe can be sure that we will be with you. Lord, we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name.